You're listening to KTOO News Juno at 104.3 FM. The following is a broadcast of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event. The seven personal stories you are about to hear were told at the Northern Light United Church on February 11, 2020. Co-hosts for the evening were Melissa Griffiths and Kristen Rankin. The theme was unexpected. The profit recipient for the event was JAM, Juno Alaska Music Matters. JAM students and mentors also performed the live music for the event. first storyteller this evening is Christy Heron. Christy was born and raised in Iowa as part of a large extended Irish Catholic family. At every family get-together, stories were told, some over and over, and they became family lore. Christy's mother particularly loved storytelling, and she encouraged everyone, especially her children, to tell more stories and give them to her as gifts. When Christy told her mother that she was storytelling here tonight, her mom had said she'd try to make it if she could. Unfortunately, she passed away this fall, so she can't physically be here tonight, but you can bet she's here in some fashion. Christy would like to dedicate this storytelling experience to her mother, Joanne Knight Heron. Welcome to the stage, Christy. Many of you probably have an experience in nature that profoundly touched you in some way. My story tonight is about one of those experiences for me. I was backpacking with my friend Jack in late summer in Glacier National Park. On our second morning, we awoke to brilliant sunshine and crisp, cold air. We only had five miles to go that day, so we had a leisurely morning and just let the day warm up a little bit. Our next section of trail was through some rugged and rocky terrain across the flanks of Mount Jackson and climbed 1,600 feet up to Gunsight Pass. We took our time. We stopped frequently to rest and cool off and uh, admire the sweeping vistas of the valleys below and the lake and then the two towering 10,000-foot peaks on either side of us and we diligently scanned the upper ridge lines and slopes in hopes that we just might see a mountain goat. As we got closer to the pass, the trail got steeper and narrower and more exposed. I was in the lead, and we came around the corner, and there, not 10 feet away from us, was this big, beautiful mountain goat. Now, 10 feet's not very far away, and we were thrilled uh, until we sort of realized that while we had stopped in our tracks to admire this goat, he was continuing towards us. It looked to us like we were going to have a wildlife encounter. Now, the Park Service, before you can get a backcountry permit, requires that you go and sit through a safety orientation where they tell you all about the perils of travel in the backcountry and what to do if you encounter wildlife. 
They told us about mountain goats and they said generally they're not a problem, they're pretty mellow, but if they get agitated or uh, feel threatened in any way, they'll headbutt you or they'll gore you with their horns. <laughs> and the way that you can tell that they're agitated is that their tail stands straight up. So I check out our goat and look and see, and sure enough, his tail standing straight up. So the other thing that they told us is that uh, you could avoid these encounters very simply by just stepping off to the side of the trail, letting the goat go by. Oh, how I wish we could have done that. Unfortunately, in our case, the trail on this side was a sharp drop-off down to a pile of jagged and broken rocks. And this side was a steep rock wall. We couldn't really retreat either, so we sort of figured our best bet was to just shrink up against the rock wall as best we could, make ourselves as small as possible, and hope that the goat would just walk by us. So the goat continues to come towards us, and as he does, time slows down. I have plenty of time to notice that he has shed his dingy white winter coat and is growing in this beautiful, white, luxuriant coat, uh, getting ready for next winter. He has these big, dark, soulful-looking eyes that you can kind of just get lost in. His head is right about stomach height, and jutting out of it are these two big, shiny black horns that are long and pointed and look pretty sharp. So as he's just about to get to me, I push myself into that rock wall just as hard as I can, pressing my shoulder and my backpack in place, and I instinctively put both hands in front of my stomach. As he's next to me, he stops and turns his head in towards me. Oh my gosh, he's gonna gore me. But instead, he tilts his head up he leans in towards my arm, and he licks me. <laughs> and then he licks me again, and again. Now, a mountain goat tongue is rough. It's really, really rough and dry. It feels more like someone just swiped you with some 30-grit sandpaper. But after three licks, he passes on by. He licks Jack's leg once as he goes past him. And then he goes on down the trail. Jack and I kind of look at each other. We shake our heads in disbelief and continue on up to the pass. Now, Typically, when I've been in a situation where I thought I was in grave danger and I've come through and unscathed, um, I'm pretty elated. So we laugh and we tell each other versions of uh, what we thought had happened and why we thought that mountain goat had licked us. And 
at that point in time, we thought we were part of a pretty elite group of people that had ever been that close to a mountain goat, much less been licked by one. Come to find out, we really weren't. The goats in that area had discovered that humans were a good source of salt. <laughs> and any number of people got licked that summer. <laughs> but for me, it was a singular experience. It was a rare privilege to be that close to this wild, majestic animal. And he touched me of his own volition. It was so much more than just a lick on the arm. It was like a magical touch that just went straight to my core and connected me to these iconic animals for the rest of my life. So now, when I'm out in the mountains and I'm looking up at the slopes and I see the mountain goats up there, I never fail to get a little tingle on my arm in that same spot and think how, about how incredibly lucky I was to have had that unexpectedly profound experience. Thank you. Our next storyteller is Cam Burns. Cam came to Juneau after growing up on the Great Lakes. He made a deal with a friend on a beach in India. This friend plays a big role in his story tonight. And this eventually brought him to Juneau. His mother once told him that he had been talking about Alaska since he was about nine years old. And she wasn't the least surprised when he moved here. Cam is a photographer and tour guide and continues to add to his list of adventures whenever he can. Please welcome Cam to the stage. I'm sure most of you at some point in your life have jumped onto a boxcar on a moving freight train. Um, so I'm not gonna go into the logistics of how that's done. Um, that's what happened to Larry and I one hot summer day in 1969 um, outside Miles City, Montana. Now we were supposed to be in Milwaukee, a thousand miles away the day before, but things hadn't worked out, so we found ourselves in a boxcar on a freight train. Lots of stuff happened in that thousand miles. I don't have time to tell you most of it, so we're just gonna skip ahead 500 miles to um, a big freight train yard in Minneapolis. So about 20 hours after we get on this boxcar, the train pulls into a big freight yard in Minneapolis. Um, the man in the caboose, once the train stopped, the caboose was about nine cars behind us. Um, the engine, 165 cars in the other direction. The train was two miles long. This was the end of the road for the man in the caboose. And as he gets out and walks by our car, he says, just stick with this car. We'd already met him. And he said, just stick with this car. This car is going to Chicago, and that takes you right through Milwaukee. So we did. And it was a good thing he told us that, because over the next couple of hours, the train was taken apart. Cars were shifted all over the place. Eventually, though, it came back together, much shorter this time, probably about a mile long. And late in the evening, now we've been on the 
train about 24 hours. Uh, late in the evening that day, it left Minneapolis heading straight south to St. Paul. I need to tell you about Larry, who was with me on this trip. Larry and I are blood brothers, and this came about once when Larry discovered he was bleeding. And he decided this was a good time for us to become blood brothers. A few minutes later, I was bleeding, and we put our thumbs together. That was 50 years ago. Larry lives in Juneau. Um, so uh, actually, pretty cool. Um, Another time, Larry and I found ourselves uh, on a, a cold winter evening in Germany. It was really dark. We were walking across a field looking for some place to put up our pup tent when suddenly Larry jumped back and he said he'd just been shocked by an electric fence. We eventually squirmed under that fence and found a place to put up our pup tent. But here's the thing. I'm not at all convinced there was an electric fence there or in fact, any fence there. Uh, this is life with Larry. Or the time we spent an evening in an opium den in Bombay, India, now Mumbai, just because sometimes you just gotta try these things out. <laughs> well, now we're in our freight train. We've been there 24 hours. We're heading south out of Minneapolis and we're getting kind of bored on the train. So Larry comes up with this great idea. The boxcar is 60 feet long, about 10 and a half feet wide. It's got a door on either side. The doors are about three quarters open and across the opening, right about waist height, is a big beam, probably four inches by 10 inches, about 15 feet long. Just, just the right size to kind of lean against as the train goes across the countryside. Larry decides if he was to grab onto that beam and swing himself around to the outside of the freight car, he could, with it now his butt's hanging over the, the ties down below, he could do what um, teenage guys do when their butt is hanging over open space. I thought this was a terrible idea. We'd already seen things flash by the side of the car way too close. While we were arguing about this, Larry demonstrated how well this could work by holding onto the beam and swinging around to the outside of the car. And I'm thinking, well, what if he slips or loses his grip? Um, if, if something was to hit him and he was suddenly gone, I would have no way to stop the car or even tell anyone that anything would happen. So I was seeing death and destruction in front of me while he was saying great adventure. So we argued back and forth like this as he hung there um, for a while. Eventually he gave into my superior wisdom or maybe he was just pulling my leg and he gave up on that. Um, but eventually he decided not to do this and he swung around back to the inside of the car. The instant he was in the car, we went over a bridge. One foot on either side of the car were big girders going by. Um, we both fell to the ground in the boxcar, um, cursing the air as you do. Um, it was a long bridge. Turns out it's about 1,600 feet over the Mississippi River. Um, so as these girders are flashing by, eventually we end up doing really the only thing you can do in a situation like that. We burst into laughter. 
We laughed our way across the Mississippi River, and when we got on the other side, we were in Wisconsin. We still had about 450 miles to go, many hours, but eventually we pulled into Milwaukee. Uh, we'd been on the train over 1,000 miles, 41 hours. When it finally came to a stop, we were really only about 200 feet from a city bus stop, um, went over there, I recognized the first bus that came on, so we hopped on it, and about half an hour later, we were getting off about five minutes from our homes. Now, thinking about the theme of unexpected, my mom wanted me to tell her all about the trip. Um, yeah, right, a lot of censorship in that. Um, <laughs> so, um, we'd been on the road three weeks, and a, and a lot had happened. As a matter of fact, pretty much everything that had happened on that trip was unexpected. Our next storyteller this evening is Anne Schmid. Anne spent 10 years enjoying Juno before embarking on a countrywide moving spree courtesy of her spouse's career in the Coast Guard. She enjoyed seeing and living in different parts of the country, but is glad to now be back in good old Southeast Alaska. Welcome to the stage, Anne. Okay, so my journey to becoming a gill netter in Southeast Alaska started shortly after I moved to town. It was in the fall of 2002. Um, I was really lucky because my sister already lived here, so my entry into this nice town was very smooth. She had a place for me to stay, and she had great friends for me to meet. Um, but I didn't have a car that first winter, and I was feeling really claustrophobic because I'm from South Dakota, and it's just kind of, you know, amber waves of grain and rolling hills as far as you can see. And as the winter set in and these mountains going right into the ocean, it really threw me a bit. Um, and I was feeling hemmed in, a little claustrophobic. And so when the weather would break and we would get days like we did today when it was so sunny and the blue skies, I would kind of seek out wide open spaces. And back then there wasn't the whale park, so the best place was the boat harbor. And that's where I found myself, because I lived downtown so I could walk there easily. And I did, and I quickly learned that I loved the boats. I loved looking at all of them and learning about them, and I knew that I wanted to get out on them. And so that is what I worked towards. And I benefited early on greatly from the whole concept of if you see it, you can be it. Um, this, I'm sure you've heard of it, but it's the whole idea that a little bit of diversity and inclusion leads to a lot more. And six months after moving to town, I was invited to go on a 500-mile boat trip with two other women. We went from Prince Rupert to Friday Harbor in Washington. Um, like I said, it was about 500 miles, and Captain Deborah was a serious recreational boater. She was skilled. And not only that, but she was so generous with her knowledge. She taught me how to anchor a boat and how to time the tides for safe passage. Um, she taught me how to navigate. It was just wonderful. And then a couple years after that, I worked with Captain Cheryl, and Captain Cheryl was really a professional, and she was so competent and also so friendly and easy to be with. She really inspired me that I could just be who I was and also work on the water. And so I, I eventually did. And those two experiences were so important because when I was thinking about becoming a commercial fisherman, it wasn't could I, it was did I want to. You know, I kind of knew I could. 
And so I, I did, and I have to say something about my husband, but if I talk about him, I'll cry. So I'll just say that he really believed in me too. And so we went for it, and we bought a boat. It was a fixer-upper, and we did a lot of work on it, and we fixed it up, and I fished that first year. And it, was, it went well. You know, it's a well-managed fishery. There's lots of rules to learn, and I learned them. The state tells you where to fish and how to fish and what equipment you can use. And so I, I learned those rules. And then there are unwritten rules that you have to learn. And a lot of times, it was just other fishermen telling you different ways we could all work together to keep the fishery smooth on the water, you know, operating smoothly so our nets didn't run into each other. Um, and so we could take turns at certain sets and everybody could get a chance. And I learned those because I didn't want to make waves. Ha <laughs> ha. And so I tried my best not to. And that first year, I did, I, I was able to pay my bills, and we had a lot of bills. And we had like six figures in debt. Uh, it was big. So I paid, I paid some bills that year, and it had been hard on me. The stress had been hard, but I kind of recovered that winter and came back for my second year. And my little brother was coming up to deckhand, so I was pretty excited. And we had a good time, a really good time. But I had encountered some hostility on the water, and that first year, the hostility was along the lines of Forrest Gump on the school bus, where he couldn't find a seat, and he, everybody, he was trying to find a seat, and everybody said, seat's taken. And for me, on the water, sometimes it felt like no one wanted my net. You know, the spot was taken. And it was okay, I got through it, but it was hard. And so that second year comes around, and I'm out there with my brother. We're having a good time, and we get through the height of the season, um, which is really nice. You know, it's July, and it's busy. And the hostility had increased, and it was kind of like um, things like maybe screaming at me or someone setting their net right in front of my net, and I'm talking like two feet, or even hooking onto my net and dragging it when they didn't like where I put it. But again, I had that six figures in debt, so I had to have that net in the water. That was the only way to make money. And so I kept fishing and got through it. And so anyway, I paid my bills, and the season slowed down, and I was out fishing, and the day was calm, and it was sunny, and I was by myself because there weren't that many fish around. And I was just really enjoying life. I was drinking coffee out on the deck, and this boat that was fishing near me comes towards me, turns towards me, and at this point, this is a real problem for me. You know, I don't want to talk to anyone else on the water. And so my heart rate would go up and my shoulders would kind of tense up. And I waited for him to get there and it takes forever. These boats are slow. <laughs> and he finally gets there and he, and I'm ready for him. It's fight or flight at this point and I was fight. And he says, good morning. Do you know where the tender is? And we just had a really nice conversation. <sighs> And it was such a relief. And he left. It only lasted like five minutes. It was nothing. And the season ended. And I was feeling pretty bummed out. I wasn't, wasn't sure what I was going to do with the fishery. And the most unexpected thing was that the hardest thing for me about commercial fishing was nothing physical. It was only learning how to interact with other fishermen. That was shocking. Um, but I was, I was feeling okay, and I was talking to my dad on the phone, and he said that he had talked to a relative of his and that I had a second cousin out here gill netting in southeast Alaska. And that's weird, being from South Dakota. Uh, we, I, was, I was really surprised. I couldn't believe it. And then he told me the boat name. 
And it was that man that I had talked to that morning <laughs> who was so friendly to me and who gave me a re real encouragement out there on the water. And how crazy is it that, you know, our grandpas were brothers running a business together in South Dakota, and we met as strangers on the water gillnetting in Southeast Alaska. Thank you. Next, we have Guy Archibald. Guy was introduced to Southeast Alaska in Wrangell in the early 1980s. His first impression was, even our cattle have enough sense to come in out of the rain. But the rain became the pulse of his life, drenching his days in beauty, offering adventures in the mist, and drumming him to sleep at night. They say that good judgment depends mostly on experience, and experience usually comes from surviving frequent bouts of poor judgment. Guy continues to hone his skills in this regard. Please welcome Guy to the stage. Growing up, my family lived high in the mountains of Colorado far from town and far from most other houses. During the summer months when we weren't in school, my mom would get tired of all the kids being underfoot and she would kick us outside and just say, go play. So entertainment was pretty much up to our own devices. Uh, we used to fashion go-karts out of random wheels we would find and race them down dirt roads. We would drag scrap lumber 60, 70 feet up into spruce trees to build tree houses. We would conquer steep mountain cliffs using discarded clothesline. Pretty much anything was game as long as it didn't create too many trips to the emergency room. Eventually, the goal of our entertainment became trying to make things explode. It started with a small collection of firecrackers that we had gotten through the out-of-state cousin black market because fireworks are illegal in Colorado because of the fact the state is one pop bottle rocket away from burning down to sea level. Firecrackers are about as entertaining as their names tend to denote. Uh, lady fingers are kind of a yawn. Black cats sound much more ominous and pack a little more punch. But the true king of firecrackers is the M80. It, it even sounds like military ordnance, and it was made to look like a stick of dynamite, a red cylinder with a green fuse sticking out of the side. The M80 is what taught my brothers and I the unexpected reality of shrapnel. Uh, luckily, it did not come in the form of flying shards of glass or metal. Uh, one of my brothers thought it would be funny to stick an M80 in the side of a large ant pile. He lit the fuse and we stood back what we thought was a safe distance, and after the rush of the explosion and the adrenaline faded away, each brother looked at the other and noticed that he was covered head to foot with hundreds of angry red ants. <laughs> This is also when we found out how far it was to the nearest stock tank. <laughs> when we ran out of firecrackers, we 
went to the old standby, and that was throwing aerosol cans into the burn barrel. <laughs> but we soon ran out of those. Um, and that's when we discovered Dad's oxyacetylene tanks. It started off small. We'd fill a little balloon and tie it off on the end of a stick and hold it over a candle, and it'd make a pretty satisfying little pop. But back then, we didn't really have a lot of plastic containers or bags or anything, so we quickly moved on to the idea of filling up a large tractor tire inner tube, <laughs> uh, the kind that we used to use sledding down the hill. Overcoming various technical aspects occupied our minds so that we never really thought, you know, is this a good idea? <laughs> we found the little wrench that removes the valve stem and we got some silly putty and we fashioned a fuse out of some baling twine dipped in kerosene. We filled up the inner tube and, and uh, put the fuse in and packed it with the silly putty and wrapped some black tape to hold it together. The mere fact that um, it took almost an hour to fill this tube to its bulbous proportions <laughs> gave us enough pause that we thought, maybe we should launch this in an irrigation ditch and hope the current creates a little more distance between us and, it and that. Um, that's what we did. Unfortunately, when we lit the fuse, instead of burning slowly from one end to the other, the entire length just burst into flames. Uh-oh. So we took off running. To say what happened next was unexpected is a serious understatement. Uh, it's all I remember as I'm running through this field and the first thing I noticed was all the hair from the back of my head moves forward. <laughs> and all the tall grass around me immediately hugs the ground. There was no sound of an explosion or anything, so there's a little disconnect about what was causing these weird phenomena. And that's when I noticed that even though my legs were still running, my feet were no longer contacting the ground. <laughs> and they were slowly outpacing the rest of me. I landed on my back and slid to a stop, and I rolled around, and that's when I noticed the large fireball and mushroom cloud rising up. Now, as a kid of the 60s, we were well aware of what mushroom clouds were. We had sat through many hours in school, you know, mushroom clouds throwing battleships in the air and pulling the rug out from under trees and cities. We knew that they were deadly from the fallout, and they were evil, and they were Russian. <laughs> School did not tell us about the big difference between a nuclear reaction and a chemical one, however, so the first thought in my mind was, oh, crap, we just nuked Colorado. I'm in so much trouble. <laughs> I didn't see my brothers again till supper that night, and it was very quiet. We couldn't believe that our parents hadn't noticed that earlier that afternoon we had nuked Colorado. <laughs> I was waiting for a caravan of army men coming out, wearing respirators and waving Geiger counters to haul us away. We spent the next several days counting the hairs in our comb and wiggling our teeth, waiting for the <laughs> effects of fallout. 
It never came. But then one Saturday, Dad went out to the shed to use his oxyacetylene torch and noticed that the tanks were empty. And that's when I learned that fallout can come in many unexpected forms. <laughs> They're all deadly. Thank you. You're listening to Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event on KTOO Juno at 104.3 FM. These stories were told on February 11, 2020. The theme was unexpected. We have a full lineup for our last two shows this season, but we'll be looking for new storytellers for our 10th season, which begins in September. The themes will be announced during our last show in April. In the meantime, go to mudrooms.org where you can listen to some of the 500 stories that have been told during our first nine seasons. Next, we have Alex Burkhart. Alex grew up in California, where he won a spelling bee in seventh grade and enjoyed eating strawberries. After college, Alex was imported to Juno by his girlfriend at the time, Leslie. He enjoys skiing, eating butter when it's cold, trail running, hanging out in the sun, and drinking butter when it's hot. <laughs> While Alex loves Juno for its recreational opportunities, he's found that dating is more difficult than it was in college. Please welcome Alex to the stage. Like many people who moved to Juneau, when I moved here, I didn't think it was going to be for the long term. I came up here with my girlfriend at the time, who we'll call Leslie, and... <laughs> And she came to Juno to go back to school. And she was also a musician. And she was great, uh, but it just didn't quite work out between us. And so we split, and I stayed in Juno. And a number of months after that, I was looking for love. And so <laughs> I went on the dating app, Tinder, you know. <laughs> Small town, it's great. <laughs> and I matched with my friend who we'll call Miranda. And Miranda and I had known each other for about a year and a half. We were good friends. And she was an outdoor-minded gal as well. Uh, she liked to go skiing and hiking. And she also worked in the outdoors sometimes. And uh, she was just a, a really cool gal. She was super confident, and she was always very expressive. And so we exchanged a couple messages on Tinder, but nothing ever really came of that, and uh, we just kept on being friends. And a few months later, it's uh, now cruise ship season, and boy, are there a lot more people on Tinder in the summertime. <laughs> So I matched with this other girl, uh, we'll call her Tammy. 
And Tammy uh, works in Alaska in the summer times, and she is a wilderness guide, and she works off of these small cruise ships, and she's in town one day a week. And uh, she takes people into bear country, she drives skiffs to get to shore, she's this total hippie chick, and I thought she was super cool. And so we decide to go on a first date. And this is my first Tinder date ever. And what better place for a first date than the Alaskan bar? <laughs> it's a Saturday night, and I show up at the bar, and Tammy's not there yet, so I'm sitting at the bar alone, and Leslie walks up to me. <laughs> hey, Alex. What are you doing at the bar alone? Oh, I'm meeting someone. Who are you meeting? A date. She walks off. Uh-oh. Couple minutes later, Tammy walks in, and she's got this exuberant smile, this confident aura about her, this curly brown hair, and she's really cute. And so we get talking, we're ordering some drinks and uh, getting to know each other. And eventually we hit the dance floor and we start doing this kind of dancing. You know, the no touching kind. <laughs> and after about an hour of that, uh, who's the next person to show up but Miranda? <laughs> Miranda walks in. Hey, Alex. Hey, Tammy. And I'm thinking, wait, Tammy's only in town once, one day a week. How do you guys know each other? Tammy says, Tinder. <laughs> this point, I'm a little confused. I look over at Miranda, who's usually very expressive. And she just has a straight face. Look back at Tammy. Yeah. I just go on Tinder to find people with good energy. And I'm like, whoa, I've, you know, I've had a couple beers. Uh, I don't really know what's going on. Let's go dance. <laughs> so we hit the dance floor. We're now dancing as a trio. Some while later, I go to the bathroom. When I come back, I find Tammy and Miranda on the dance floor just grinding front to front. And I have no idea what to do. So I do the only thing I know how to do. <laughs> just thinking, don't be awkward, don't be awkward, don't be awkward. All the while, there's a band playing. Who's in the band but Leslie? The end of the night's rolling around, and Tammy decides it's uh, time for her to head out. Bye, Alex. It was nice to meet you. Bye, Miranda. It was good to see you again. She walks out, and then Miranda's phone starts to buzz. She pulls it out. She's getting some text messages. She says, Alex, I'm really sorry. She was so cute. I've got to go and she's gone.
Our next storyteller is Robert Bowles. Robert was born in Atlanta, Georgia, and lived there for far too long before moving to St. Augustine, Leeds, England, Chicago, and Juneau, where he never expected to be so long. Robert is endlessly curious about most things. He likes to try new things and new skills. In some ways, he's living his life backwards, and hopefully by the time he's 80, he'll be really interesting. Let's welcome Robert to the stage. Well, I've got a couple dating-related stories in this one, too. But um, this, I, In 2005, I was living with my then-girlfriend over in Leeds, England, and I really wanted to immigrate to the UK because at the time, I thought no president could ever be worse than G.W. Bush. <laughs> um, but immigration really isn't that easy. So I would spend summers back in the US. And I had gained a little weight from drinking too many beers in the English pubs, so I bought myself a bicycle, and I did the bicycle ride across Georgia, which is 400 miles. Then I thought, oh, that's really cool. I think I'd like to be a bicycle mechanic or a bicycle tour guide. So I took a bicycle mechanics course, and then I started looking for jobs. And I thought, I'll get a job in Hawaii or Alaska, and it'll be really cool. I'll get paid for it, and maybe go back with one or $2,000 and have a lot of fun. So I found a job in a little town in Alaska, Juneau. And I didn't know a lot about it, and I didn't do a whole lot of research. I landed here on May 4th, or maybe it was May 5th. I don't really know because it's right around midnight. But John McConaughey picked me up at the airport. He had just purchased Cycle Alaska and needed a bike mechanic and a tour guide. So um, I spent the summer up here. And um, so when John picked me up, he took me to an apartment we'd arranged on South Douglas. And I went inside about one in the morning and pulled the meager covers over me and went to sleep for about two and a half hours until the light came streaming in through the window and woke me up. And that was kind of unexpected. I didn't have any curtains, so I thought, well, I'll go outside and see what this place looks like. I stumbled outside and Again, I don't know why this was unexpected, because I am in Alaska, but I looked up in a tree and there's this big eagle up there and I went, well, guess wildlife viewing is gonna be pretty good here. I'll check eagle right off the list. And the next unexpected thing was the inebriated woman from upstairs hollering down at me, hey, you want a cup of coffee? And I thought, well, she's up at five in the morning and I'm a caffeine addict, so sure. So I went up and had a cup of coffee with her. About three and a half hours after that, I was out in the Costco area working on a trailer load of bicycles. It was bright blue sunshine, and it, it seemed like it was 80 degrees. I was actually sweating, and I was in Alaska, and I was looking up at all these green trees, more trees than I had seen in a long time, especially having lived over in England. And that was kind of unexpected. Well, the summer went pretty fast. Um, I drove up and down Egan Drive and up and down Egan Drive and up and down Egan Drive, taking tourists back and forth. And I did get up to Skagway, saw the, sign of, saw the shrine of St. Therese, did some cool hikes, and I caught one salmon. Then it was time to leave. And I was, the night before I was leaving, I was staying in a hotel out by the airport. About 9 o'clock at night, I thought, I wonder what this place is like after the tourists leave. So I called a friend who had a room for rent, and then I canceled my flight, and I stayed. I got a job at Galagaskin's, a local department store that no longer exists here, 
And I worked that job until about mid-December when I decided, you know, I really need a professional job in a big city. So I made the decision to leave Juneau and I, I flew back home and then I flew to Chicago and started looking for a job. And I had a job in about 10 days. And I told the company I wanted about three weeks to look around the city and settle in. And I had a great time. I went out dancing to like five in the morning and um, heard a lot of good bands, met a lot of nice people. And then I went into work. My first day on the job, I was 46, felt great. Best shape I'd been in in years. Great new paying job. 10 o'clock in the morning, I get a phone call from Atlanta. And it's not from my mom some number I don't recognize. The voice on the other end said, Robert, this is your doctor. Um, I think you have cancer. You need to go see a doctor up there right away. This stuff kills people. Well, that was pretty unexpected for me. Um, I want to tell you before I continue the story, that's, that's not what it's about. I'm okay now. I knock on wood. I was treated 12 years ago and seem to be doing fine. But the big C is kind of scary. I confided in some friends of mine the few I had in Chicago, and the word kind of got around, and to make a long story short, they got rid of me before I got on the healthcare system. <laughs> I didn't expect a laugh for that, but it's okay. Uh, um, <clears throat> so I had a standing offer to come back to Alaska to take a job, and I knew I'd have healthcare with it. So um, kind of unexpectedly, I found myself back in Alaska in August of 2006 after having made the decision to leave. Since I've been back in Juneau, I've had a lot of great and wonderful, unexpected experiences. I'm probably the only guy to charter a taxi to come from Whitehorse, Canada, through the border to Skagway, pick me up, and take me back to Whitehorse, Canada for a first date my first Christmas up here. Now, the date, you know, went okay. It wasn't great, but it wasn't bad either. I did see three links along the way. I learned how to cross-country ski. I cracked five ribs sledding. And the, the Canadian border guards remember me for years afterwards as the guy who came up for Christmas in the taxi. I've had the unexpected and wonderful experience of standing underneath the Mendenhall Glacier and looking up at the, the crystal blue ice above me. I'll, I'll never forget that. I've also buried a frozen dead cat at sea in Frederick Sound in Petersburg. The woman who owned the boat told me afterwards, um, you know, I've never had the boat out in that rough weather before. I've met five of my musical heroes up here, Arlo Guthrie, Bela Fleck, Mavis Staples, John Sebastian, and Booker T. Jones, who made the very first record I ever purchased, Green Onions. And I got to chat with all of them. I hadn't ice skated in about 35 years, and I unexpectedly found myself playing in my first organized ice hockey game at the age of 50. And last year, I got up the courage to apply for the Alaska Folk Festival, and they gave me a spot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I thought it was just going to be me and a ukulele, but ended up, I ended up fronting a band and singing in front of a crowd for the first time ever in my life, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. So I'd like to say that Juno has helped me to discover and in some cases rediscover things inside myself and in the world around me. A friend here in Juno once told me, if you have a talent, Juno will bring it out in you. And another one said, Juno is like a laboratory to teach you how to live. 
So if you are, have been here in Juneau for a while, I hope you continue to do, discover new and unexpected things in your world. And if you're new to Juno, I hope you stay here long enough to discover unexpected things too. For me, after expecting to be here only three to five years after coming back, I unexpectedly find myself here 14 years later, very much in love with my adopted hometown of Juneau, Alaska. Our last storyteller is Ray Romberg. Ray's formative years were spent between Idaho, Texas, Oregon, and California, where she was always outside exploring various dogs in tow. She came to Alaska to visit a friend named Kivel, dogs in tow, and just never left. After 10 formative years exploring the land of the Sukpiak, Alutic and Denina people around Ketchumac Bay. She followed a girl in a job, dog in tow, to the land of the Takuquan and Akquan. It's been almost three years now, but her formative time in Southeast feels like it is just beginning. Please welcome Ray to the stage. My friend Kivel was the kind of friend who was always getting you in trouble. Mostly it was because her ideas were so outrageously fabulous that trouble was sort of an inherent byproduct. There was the Thanksgiving when I was eight years old. When she suggested I take a ride on her space trolley, this really cool zip line in her front yard, of course, I said yes. Despite the fact that I was wearing a full length brand new blue holiday dress that my mom had required me to wear. Just as I grabbed onto those familiar handles, pushed off the tree, and started to fly, rip, tears flew next, mostly out of surprise and mom fear, and the fact that I had likely flashed her older brother. <laughs> Turns out I didn't really like that dress. Turns out I didn't really like dresses at all, but that realization was still a few years out. When we were 10 and home alone, she had the great idea to drink hot cocoa out of my grandmother's crystal beer steins. Of course, I said yes, and just as we poured that creamy liquid into those magic, clear vessels, crack! Tears poured next, surprise again, and mom fear, and the fact I didn't know what the hell to do with the broken mugs. Fast forward about 10 years, and we were both on a break home from college. When Kivel offered to shave my head, I did hesitate, but only long enough for her to grab the scissors and cut off the braid that was hanging down my back. Bzzz. Just as the last locks of my golden hair fell to my childhood bathroom floor, I caught sight of myself in the mirror. Tears fell next. The face looking back at me was totally unfamiliar, freed of two decades of enforced femininity, ready for something new. The full realization was still a few months out, and 
Well, it turns out I really should have been crying out of mom fear because boy was she pissed when she saw me. <laughs> You'd think after that legacy of tears, I would have just stopped answering Keeble's phone calls. But five years later, there I was on the phone with her as she proposed that we drive on bikes from New York to Maine, despite the fact that neither of us had ever been more than 10 miles on a bike at a time. Of course, I said yes. So we set off on a pretty mild September day across the Brooklyn Bridge, heading north into Westchester County, where we had our one of two planned nights, places to stay. Um, you see, the idea was just to find places to camp along the way which worked pretty well in New York and throughout most of Connecticut, although we relied more on campgrounds than we had planned or our budget really allowed. We were constantly scouting, trying to find places to pitch a tent where we would go unnoticed. Being something of a rule follower, um, as evidenced by all that mom fear and the fact that it took me 20 plus years to figure out some pretty key things about my identity. Um, well, that clandestine camping produced a lot of anxiety. One night, we found ourselves in a tiny Massachusetts town about halfway through our trip, right at dusk. There was no campground and no good place to stay. So finally, we just coasted around the back of a school, across the really smooth expanse that was the basketball court, to the playground. We tucked our bikes behind the slide and, sleeping gear in tow, climbed up onto a play structure, where, stretched tall, we could just barely fit on one of the landings. <laughs> I was so relieved to be out of sight, hidden from view, with those slats on the side of the play structure and the darkness that was starting to fall. I had just sort of begun to relax my weary body when we heard it, the crunch of tires. Suddenly, a bright white light painted a stripe across the grass, across the bottom of our play structure, and then stopped, illuminating the basketball court. Keevil and I exchanged panicked glances. A truck had parked, and even though its engine turned off, the lights didn't. We had been discovered. I was sure of it. We were going to be yanked from our cozy spot and thrown in jail. I pictured mugshots. I pictured fingerprinting, and uh, worst of all, I pictured the one phone call. Mom fear flooded me instantly before the truck door even opened. Finally, we heard the creak and then silence. Some quiet rustling and then more silence. What were they doing? Were they loading a gun? Were they taking aim? Was this small transgression going to end not in a night in jail, but to our ultimate demise? I grabbed Keevil's hand and we pressed ourselves to the base of that play structure, peering through the slats. Slap, slap, swish. A figure, tall, glided into view onto the court where it stopped, arms raised. Keevil and I exchanged confused glances. It was too far away to really see the face, but we could tell it was a man, and he had this halo of white hair around his head, illuminated by the headlights of the truck. 
After what seemed an eternity, he leaned towards the darkness where we were hidden and pushed into movement. Impossible movement, unexpected, beautiful, graceful movement. He painted an arc with his body around the court, arms flowing. Once, twice, three times he circled before cutting to center court, where even more impossibly, he started to spin. Faster and faster he spun, arms pulled to chest until he was a perfect blur. A perfect skater's spin. Skates. Roller skates. This man was inexplicably, unexpectedly, impossibly, and so beautifully roller skating in the 10 p.m. darkness of this tiny Massachusetts town. He moved with this wild abandon that I could only dream of. Without worry, without anxiety, without rules or requirements, I wondered what it would be like to feel that free. And yet he was skating in the darkness, hiding this wonder, this magic from view. I wondered what it would be like to get to an age where my hair was that white and still be hiding. Well, some progress has been made, but I think the full realization is still a few years out. Thank you. This is KTOO News Juno at 104.3 FM. The stories you just heard were recorded live at Mudrooms on February 11, 2020. The theme was unexpected. Proceeds went to JAM, Juno Alaska Music Matters, and their students and mentors also performed the live music. Special thanks to Laura Kurt, Northern Light United Church, Copa, and The Rookery for supporting the event. To Lucid Reverie for hosting our website, mudrooms.org and of course to KTOO for bringing each Mudrooms to listeners like you. Join us tomorrow night, March 10th, for our next show. The theme will be Left Behind. This program is a production of the Mudroom Storyboard. Alita Buss, Melissa Griffiths, Jeff Smith, David Noon, Kristen Rankin, and Jim Fitzer. I'm Rich Moniak. Have a good night.